Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there, there they continued to preach the gospel. This is God's word. Thanks, God. Amen. You may be seated. William Carey was a Baptist in the late 18th century who became known as the father of modern missions. He was incredibly smart. He had an innate uh, language skill and the ability to learn foreign languages quickly. He mastered Latin, French, German, as well as the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. He held a PhD and could teach in almost any school higher education that he wanted. Instead, he chose to use his life and language skills to fulfill the Great Commission. He put together a mission team for Bible translation and wanted to establish disciples and churches in the country of India. Before going to India, Carey was able to meet with the famous hymn writer, John Newton. And he asked John Newton, what if I finally get to Bengal, India, I establish a printing press for the translation of biblical text, and I do all this groundwork, and then they send me home. What do I do then? John Newton said, then conclude that your Lord has nothing there for you to accomplish. But if he has, no power on earth can hinder you. Carrie would indeed face much opposition upon his arrival, both from his homeland and his own family and difficulties that they faced, and in India. After his arrival to Bengali, he would not see a convert to Christianity for another seven years. His son died of dysentery. His wife suffered a nervous breakdown of which she would never recover. At one point, his entire life's work, several wooden printing press, presses that they had purchased and um, were using for their translation of scripture, were burned. The entire building was burned. Dozens of original Bible translations into several Indian languages and dialects were completely consumed in a single day. He remarked after this fire with tears streaming down his face, In one short evening, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. As the Lord would have it, word spread quickly about the tragic fire that took place at his mission center, 
And he suddenly became well-known in Europe, and many volunteers came to India to help him rebuild this missionary center, and they brought with them over 10,000 pounds. 20 years later, because of his perseverance and help from other missionaries and mission teams, Carey was able to translate the entire Bible into 44 local Indian languages and dialects. The words of John Newton would never be forgotten. If you are sent home, they conclude that the Lord has nothing there for you to accomplish. But if he has, no power on earth will be able to stop. Today's text leads us to consider our perseverance for the gospel when times get hard. When is it time to go home and when is it time to stay? We have a cloud of witnesses who've gone before us. These aren't new trials, these aren't new persecutions, these aren't new difficulties in the Christian life. They are cheering us on to run the race and fulfill the Great Commission. Persecution in the Christian life is as old as the book of Acts. Technically as old as the Old Testament, if you count Hebrews 11, right? The question we have to ask ourselves is how are we going to get through it? What if we lose everything? What if our family disowns us? What if our church is forced to go underground? What if we face some humiliation or public disgrace for our faith in Jesus Christ? Our sermon today answers the question, how to survive persecution and poison when preaching the gospel. How to survive persecution and poison when preaching the gospel. And that's the two headings we'll look at, persecution and poison, based on the text. And for those of you who may be here today and you haven't started preaching the gospel yet, this text is also an invitation for you to come and be a witness for Christ and His resurrection and make disciples of all nations. Maybe you're here today and you don't consider yourself a very evangelistic person. The Lord is calling you from His Word to come and follow Him and experience the greatest joy imaginable by joining His army of uh, um, <clears throat> light bearers to go to the Gentiles and make disciples even under the worst kind of scrutiny. I think all of us want a joy that holds firm no matter what's happening around us. Anybody say no to that? This text tells us how to have that. So let's listen. Let's listen. First, persecution. Persecution. <clears throat> Starting uh, back in verse 49. Uh, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Um, now, if you remember, we, we've been in Antioch. Antioch 2.0 in Pisidia, not the first Antioch. Paul, Barnabas, and the other missions team had uh, been there and uh, had sort of a mixed response to the gospel. When they first arrived, everybody in the synagogue was like, yeah, okay, this is good. Uh, they, they were interested. They followed them around for a week, begged them to come back the next Sabbath, and they did come back the next Sabbath, but things had changed. The Jews suddenly were jealous that the entire city was gathered just for these newcomers and the attention that they had so quickly gained. So they decided to then publicly uh, revile and criticize Paul. So then Paul quoted Isaiah 49 and said, that's fine, we'll preach to the Gentiles. If you guys reject the Messiah, Isaiah 49 says, we'll, we'll go preach to them and they'll receive the good news. And, and they did. And they, they heard and the Gentiles rejoiced and glorified the Lord. Luke records it saying at the end of that passage that God appointed these Gentiles to eternal life. And that's the note that we ended on last week. So now the Jews could just leave them alone. 
and they could minister to the Gentiles, and all would be well, right? <clears throat> the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And we're reminded of Acts 1.8, the promise to reach the nations. The gospel was growing faster than any of the religious authorities could keep up with. Pisidia was multiplying disciples, many of them now being Gentiles. And of course, because of the pride and jealousy of the Jews, this new attention would not be tolerated. How would the Jews respond to this expanse of the gospel? They want to control the uncontrollable message. They want to control the uncontrollable message. So verse 50, what do they do? The Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They went to the top ladies and the top dudes. And we don't know what kind of things they were saying, but we know what their strategy was. Who has the most influence over the people? Who has the most influence over Antioch and Pisidia? Who do we need on our side before they even realize their sides to choose? How can we show them that Paul and Barnabas are not to be trusted? By getting them on their side, <clears throat> they've had to have said things that were probably not true and pose some kind of threat to power. Paul and Barnabas want to take over the synagogue, right? This is what the Sanhedrin was saying about Peter and the apostles. They want to destroy, or about Stephen, they want to destroy God's temple. They're trying to overthrow our whole town and cause riots and ruin our good culture and religion. We need to do something about this. And what's interesting, this issue wasn't really about doctrine. This issue wasn't really about Jesus. It was about intimidation and control. They wanted to control an uncontrollable gospel. So they got out the biggest wooden spoon they could find and they stirred the pot. They stirred the pot. They persecuted them. Eventually the pot tipped over. They drove them out of the district. Two quick points to make. Did persecution come because they did something wrong? No. Right? Not a trick question. No. They were doing good. They were obedient to Christ's command to make disciples of all nations. Persecution was actually a result of faithfulness, not of crime. They were doing good for the kingdom of God. That's what Peter says in his First uh, Peter, If anyone should suffer, let him suffer as a Christian, and not as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Those things bring shame. But suffering for Christ, persecution, is nothing to be ashamed of. That's what Peter says. One of the biggest themes in the book of Acts, one of the primary reasons it's been recorded all these years later, is to prepare us for persecution. We just finished 12 weeks trying to prepare one another for persecution and all other kinds of suffering on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. Y'all were there for that, right? Most of y'all? We're, we're trying to get ahead of the ball here. Persecution, difficulty, trials, hardships are promised to come. They will come in 2023. 2023 will bring good things, but it is a sure promise that we will also suffer in some manner for righteousness' sake. And one of the things to remember and to take courage in when suffering comes is that if we're being persecuted, it's probably because we're doing something right. It's a result of faithfulness. Now, if you're not persecuted, that doesn't necessarily mean you're being unfaithful, but... 
If you are faithful, the Bible promises that persecution will come. And I promise you, when the perse persecution comes, if it's a result of faithful living, it is not God's punishment. This is not vindictive. This is not God judging you. This is a natural occurrence of us living as lights in a dark world. This is how it works. Persecution comes. It's the only natural offense defense the world knows to the offense of the gospel. Shut it down. And if anything, when we experience persecution, it is assurance that God sees us and that he is doing something through us that no power on earth is able to stop. Second thing to point out here. Notice the Jews did not attack doctrine. They didn't go after Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't comment on any of the Old Testament prophecies that Paul preached on. They just got out the wooden spoon and just stirred that pot like a pot of grits back there. Right? Y'all with me? The New Testament gives us plenty of warnings against false teachers. Right? We read about some of those today in our scripture reading. But did you know the New Testament gives us almost just as many warnings against pot stirrers. 1 Timothy 6. We didn't read this one, but at the end of 1 Timothy, here's how Paul counsels Timothy. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and teaching that accords with godliness, okay, here, bad, false teaching, right? Here it is. Be aware of it. Watch out for it. But then he says, here's what you look for. He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He says, watch out for false teachers, and he doesn't mention anything about doctrine. <laughs> That's about behavior. And three times in the Timothy books, he refers to this needless craving for controversy. And he mentions it again in the book of Titus. Colossians 2, Paul attributes this behavior to those who have a sensuous mind, or here he calls them those who have a depraved mind. So look, we care about doctrine, right? I think we're a church that does a good job caring about doctrine. But, almost just as important, or just as dangerous, are those who just love to stir the pot. Perhaps they can tell us who Jesus is, they have a testimony, they dress well, they fit the part, but something is off. They just seem concerned with the wrong things. They whisper a lot. They only talk to certain people. When these individuals come in among us, we need to pay close attention and protect the bride of Christ at all costs. As Jack read this morning, avoid such people. But getting back to the point of this sermon, we need to know what to do when the persecution comes. How do we respond? What are we supposed to do? What if someone is needlessly causing drama and stirring the pot? It's about to tip over. What do we do? Two things happen in our text. Verse 51 and 52, they shook off the dust from their feet and they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Shake off the dust. That doesn't sound very Christian, right? Shake off the dust from your feet against them. <clears throat> this was a practice established by Jesus as he taught his disciples. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus gave instructions 
on uh, how his disciples would be going out to uh, preach repentance for the kingdom of God from place to place, doing signs and wonders, authority to cast out demons, all that good stuff. They were to travel in twos. They were not to carry more than they needed. Your, your sandals, a tunic, that's all you need. And if somebody rejects you, if somebody does not receive you, they were to shake off the dust as a testimony against them. And Jesus started this practice, but he did not start the whole shaking of, of feet thing. Uh, Jesus told his disciples to do this, but this was a custom that was already uh, established in Jewish culture. The Jews, after going to a Gentile-ridden area, would leave that place shaking the dust off of their feet against that town or that people, as if to say, y'all are dirty, unclean, and we want nothing to do with you. Now imagine this subtle message at the most appropriate time when here these Jews are shaking the dust off of their feet, not toward Gentiles, but toward the Jews in Antioch who are rejecting Jesus. Thus, it's not about Jew. It's not about Gentile. This is about Christ. So are we allowed to do this? Anybody here ever gone to that person's doorstep and just rubbed your feet on their doormat and stormed off? I've never done that. <clears throat> Symbolically, though, I think that we have some warrant at times to move on. To move on. The idea here is that you gave it your all. You tried to show them the truth in love and be the light of Christ. They continually rejected you, and now it's time to move on. Time is valuable. Seeds need to be sown on good soil. Go to other places. In this case, it's also good to point out they were severely outnumbered. The entire town was stirred up against them. Um, that's a good sign that it's time to move on. They also had clearly heard the message of salvation multiple times. It wasn't just one quick gospel presentation. They didn't like it, so they left. They had been there, who knows how long, at least two Sabbaths and longer, and shared the gospel with multitudes of people. And they continued to reject it. That's a good sign to move on. They also had been there for a while. Again, this wasn't a quick weekend mission trip. They packed their bags and were ready to stay as long as they needed to. They had been in, in, in the town long enough in face-to-face -face interaction with these individuals long enough for them to repent and they did not repent so maybe it's time for you to move on from whoever is relentlessly persecuting or harassing you have you shared jesus with them here's what you need to ask have you given them time to repent are they numbered with a lot of wicked people around them and you can never get them alone are you outnumbered? These are some questions to consider. But do know that according to Jesus himself, there does come a time to turn your back on that person who is ruining your life. We should persevere and work with the ethic of William Carey, but there are times to shake off the dust and move on. Whether we go or whether we stay, where is our joy? It's not a coincidence that as they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit simultaneously, after they were driven out, persecuted, uh, ran, run off from, from Antioch. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Our joy is not in a life free of persecution, 
free of controversy or free of difficulty. Our joy is in the Holy Spirit who indwells us, comforts us, and sanctifies us. So in the worst kinds of trials and mistreatments, God allows, and, and God allows everything that we have to be burned up in a single day. We have the assurance that our joy cannot be taken away because the Holy Spirit cannot be taken away. And this tells us what being filled with the Holy Spirit ought to look like. Jack taught us a little bit, a bit about the beginning of this chapter when Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit and he rebuked Elimus publicly, the magician dude, right? Now here it is again, filled with the Holy Spirit, all of them. Nobody's being rebuked. In fact, they're the ones being rebuked. They're the ones being run out of town, but they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit remained with them and comforted them. So that means the joy and the filling of the Spirit is not necessarily when you get warm fuzzies singing till the storm passes by, right? Who loves the warm fuzzies? I do. I do. Okay? Goosebumps are good. But that's not the only time the Holy Spirit is with us. He fills us when we're empty. He fills us when we're empty. He fills us when we're exhausted, spent, alone, tired, beaten, and worn down. He's the giver of joy, the giver of life. He gives joy on Sunday mornings. He gives joy on Monday nights. That's because he never leaves his children. Praise the Lord, he does stay with us because they were going to need the Holy Spirit again in Iconium. Number two, poison. Poison. Look at chapter 14. Verse 1, they did it again. In Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. We're seeing Paul's pattern. What do you do? Go to a new town, go to the synagogue, cause a scene, right? That's Paul's missionary pattern. Uh, and that's what they did. They spoke in such a way that both Jews and Gentiles believed. This is an even better response than the first Sunday in, uh, or Saturday in, in Antioch. Because here you got two birds with one stone. They went to the synagogue and Gentiles and Jews were both believing. All right, they're, they're really getting some traction here in Iconium. A great number of them. This is like a redeeming moment from being driven out of Antioch, right? But verse 2, what happens? But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. What happened? Same thing that happened in Antioch. They wanted to control the uncontrollable message. Perhaps some from Antioch came to Iconium to even warn them. We see that happen in chapter 17 when they leave Thessalonica. They went to Berea to say, hey, don't trust these guys, right? That could have happened in this case. Whatever it was, it was the same deal. More stirring of the pot. The grits were spilling over. They poisoned their minds. That's a really strong word. They poisoned their minds. Uh, I was excited to look it up. I thought maybe this was going to be like you know, a snake bite or some kind of venom or actual poison or something is used. It means physical abuse. That's what the word poison means. Abuse. What they covered up as some kind of smooth political language was actually beating their minds to death. This was psychological manipulation so that they would reject the gospel and the gospel bearers. Luke didn't say they persuaded them. They poisoned 
them and kept them from Jesus. They ruined them. Well, they tried. Time to, t to just shake off the dust, right? Shake off the dust again. You're in Iconium. What's verse 3 say? So they remained a long time. Wait, what? <laughs> That's, you have the exact same thing. You just have in Antioch. And they're driven out. And here they say, we need to stay longer. They do the opposite. So there are times to stay. And there are times to leave. This, in their perspective, was a time to stay. So, again, if you're having some, if you're, if you're, if you have something you're on the verge of giving up on, a lost family member, a workplace that is hammering you, whatever it is that you just want to throw in the towel, here are some alternative questions to ask before you do that. Are there gospel opportunities? Are you going to be passing by a God-given opportunity to share the gospel if you say goodbye to whatever it is? Are you really done here? Have you done all that you could do? Or have you just tried a little bit? Are you halfway done and you don't want to do the rest of the work because it's too difficult, it's too awkward, makes you uncomfortable, it might hurt your reputation, whatever. Uh, and by the way, I think this is really where I see far too many Christians leaving churches. Because they want to see some good change in the body of Christ. But they get impatient. They want to go somewhere where somebody else has already done the work. And so when something gets hard and difficult in their own church, they have to leave and go somewhere else and bear somebody else's fruit, right? Perhaps God has brought you here to be a part of change at Main Street Baptist Church. Don't give up too quickly. And a question that I always go back to, one more to ask, what will give God the greater glory? What will give God the greater glory, staying or leaving? Staying might give God glory. We could see that as a possibility. Leaving could also give God glory. I could see that as a possibility. So what do we do? Give him whatever, do whatever gives him the most glory. That's what we do, right? I tell you, I'm still at Main Street Baptist Church almost eight years later because I genuinely believed it would give God the most glory to stay. I asked myself that a number of times. What will give the Lord the most glory? I could leave and he could find another pastor to help this church and get glory out of it. And he could also use me somewhere else and get glory out of it. But staying in my perspective was the thing that would give him the most glory. No matter how difficult it was, or what trials we would soon face. Anytime I ever thought about leaving, staying just wrote a greater story for God's fame. So I had to stay. The Lord loves to display his glory and write wonderful stories with weak people. Don't leave too soon. Verse 3 says they stayed for a long time, and what were they doing? They were speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. If they had left as soon as things got hard, they would have missed all that. Right? They were faithful, and God did awesome stuff. He bore witness to the word of His testimony, of His grace. That means He made His promises come to life. His glory was visible. 
Signs and wonders were done as a testament to the resurrecting power of God. The Lord loves to put his glory on display. Why was the man born blind uh, in John chapter 9? Because God was working a work for his glory. He was doing something so that people could visibly see God's power at hand. You know why I love the church? This church and the whole church, the universal church, Jesus' church? Because we are walking, breathing testaments to God's glory. We are visible demonstrations of grace. We are uh, uh, witnesses and God's bearing on us visible grace. We are signs and wonders. We are dead people who came to life. We are a gathering of Jews and Gentiles from different nations, tribes, and tongues who've all been captivated by the grace of God. We are the called out ones. We are the ones who were in the valley of dry bones and got up and started walking in flesh and, and all this came on us and our heart of stone was ripped out and our heart of flesh was put in. We got out of the boat to follow Jesus. And our lives tell the story. All 45 members of Main Street Baptist Church have a testimony that through the hearing of the message of salvation, God supernaturally woke up their souls to new life and imparted Jesus' righteousness to them, and it changed everything. Every Christian here has a story like that. And when we come together, it's staggering. You're here today, and it's visibly demonstrating God's grace and glory to all who see you. Isn't that a miracle? The church is a miracle. So we are commanded to come together and worship every week on the Lord's Day so we can encourage one another as living, visible displays of God's glory. That means we need to hear each other sing. I need to hear you sing, and you need to hear me sing. Men need to sing. I've been hearing a lot of conversations about that lately. Like, it's easy for the women to sing. Men, do y'all sing? I want to hear the men sing. I want to hear the kids sing. I want to hear all of you who claim that Jesus is Lord to sing like it. We need to see one another hungering for the word. We need to see one another fighting sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians says that when an unbeliever comes in among us, they are speechless. Jaws drop because they have left earth and entered another world unlike anything they've ever experienced. That's what it's supposed to be like when you walk into a biblical church that worships God for who he is. All these people singing, praying, preaching, reading the Bible, they must have something I don't have. This is the power of a local church committed to biblical worship. Perhaps you're here today and you've seen something uncanny at Main Street Baptist Church. You've seen something strange like you've never seen anywhere else. I'll invite you right now to come and believe on Jesus and join this family. He died for sinners, and we all know it well. Once were we, dead in our trespasses and sins. Through the hearing of the good news, faith was imparted to us, and we were converted. We were regenerated like something spiritually changed in us. It wasn't just that we checked a box and decided to believe this now instead of believing this. God changed us, and it was simply believing on him as Lord, repenting, and finding in him the greatest treasure. Come and believe on Jesus today, and you can join this otherworldly family. Be a demonstration of
of the visible grace of God. But of course, the more seriously we take this, the more distinct we will be from the world. Verse 4 says that the people of the city became divided. God's glory on display is indeed glorious, but it also has a separating effect on those who see it. The believers were emboldened by all they were seeing, but those who did not believe only became more upset. So upset that things came to a head when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles to mistreat Paul and Barnabas and to even stone them to death. They heard of it and they got out. The Christian life is just full of highs and lows, like this story, right? It's like, oh, we got a victory. Oh, they're, they're trying to kill us. Oh, we got a victory. Oh, they're trying to kill us, right? This is the Christian life. God keeps his promises and shows forth his glory. And then there are people around us that hate him. But our mission doesn't change no matter the results or the response. So they learned of it, and where'd they go? They went to Lystra and to Derby, verse 6, and they continued to preach the gospel there. Moving on. This was another time to leave. And as a result of their leaving, they went deeper in the middle of nowhere. This is the foothills, right? This is, this is Rutherford County. Lystra and Derby were put on a map because they preached the gospel there. This is where they first probably met Timothy, Timothy's mom and grandmom. And would for all forever be remembered because of Timothy's ministry. This little backwoods town is now on the map because Jesus has come. And they are, they are believers there now. So they had to leave. The Lord blessed when they left. So to sum up today's text, preaching, persecution, joy, repeat. Preaching, persecution, joy, repeat. We understand our task. We share the gospel no matter what. And then there are consequences, difficulty, controversy because of our faith and our proclamation of Jesus as Lord. And then we're reminded of the joy that we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And that joy that empowers us to preach some more. And then the process repeats again and again and again. Sometimes we stay. Sometimes we leave. But the mission never changes, and the Spirit never leaves. And it's good to remember in all of this that Jesus is well aware of what persecution feels like. And even though he gave permission to his disciples to dust their feet sometimes, Jesus did not. There were times where he certainly rebuked Pharisees and Sadducees and called them all kinds of names. But... When it came down to the ultimate test of staying or leaving, Jesus stayed. And praise God, Jesus stayed. He was outnumbered by those who had heard his message hundreds of times. He had been telling them that he was the Messiah for three years. He was betrayed, arrested, beaten, falsely accused, numbered with the wicked, and nailed to a tree. He died for our sin and rose for our justification. And now his name is highly exalted so that every knee should bow. He did this so we would have a model for how to do it ourselves. He did this so we would have power and boldness to do it ourselves. He did this so we would have joy in doing it ourselves. Preaching, persecution, joy, repeat. You have been invited to join us in the most joyful endeavor possible 
and the most glorious story to ever be written. This is how the Great Commission will be fulfilled. Will you follow Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Great Commission that you've assigned to us, and thank you for giving us the power and equipping us with the Holy Spirit to make disciples of every tribe, nation, and tongue. I pray that we'd be faithful in that task you've given us, faithful locally here in our county, faithful to our children, to our um, uh, lost family members, to others in our lives that uh, don't know Jesus and may cause problems as a result of us telling them about Jesus. Help us to be faithful, to count the cost, no matter the difficulty, and to know that if it is indeed your good and gracious will to save uh, our hearers, no power on earth will be able to stop it. Let us go forward with that sort of expectancy, and that sort of uh, confidence. You're the one who raises the dead. You raised us from the dead, and you're still raising people from the dead. Give us strength, give us boldness, give us perseverance to stay. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.